Okay, it's good to be with you again this morning. Um, looking forward to sharing God's word with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at um, the next in our series, Glorious, uh, exploring the character of God. Just get myself organized. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this because I felt God's blessed me in my own preparation. Uh, it was a beautiful time of worship. Thank you, Naomi, for leading us there. There you are. Thank you. Just lovely to sort of think about the greatness of God and worship him. And I trust God will help us in the next half hour to do the same. The next, uh, to just open our hearts and our minds to just let him minister faith to us. That's my prayer this morning, whether you're a Christian of a long standing or you've not even yet sure you are a Christian. I pray that something will click in you today. And faith will come about our great God and his unchanging nature, his dependability. So we're going to start by reading a short passage in uh, Malachi. And this is uh, Malachi 3, verses 6 and 7. I'm clicking away here. 3, verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Let me start by just sharing a little experience of mine in the last couple of months. At the end of April, Marion and I went on a holiday to Tunbridge Wells. Now, I know that's exotic and a bit extravagant, but I like to spoil Marion occasionally. <laughs> so I said, all right, dear, we'll go for a whole week to Tunbridge Wells. Hang the cost. So we went to Tunbridge Wells. We, we have been up there shopping from Hastings, but never really been there and explored it. So we were in a little cottage in the middle of Tunbridge Wells. And behind this, and it was very nice, actually. It was a nice holiday, wasn't it, Marion? Where is she? She's still around? Oh, there she is. And behind us was this huge common. I mean, it's big. It takes well over an hour to walk around. And it, it's quite nice, but it all goes up, a, up to the ridge at the back. It's fields and, and uh, little woods and things. And I've never been there before. And I, I thought, no, I'm going to explore it one morning. It's a bit uh, tough for Marion with her, her arthritis. So I thought, yeah, I'm out. And I walked around, explored for a while. And as I came out of one of the little woods at the top, I suddenly saw this big outcrop of rock in the sunshine, families around it, children scrambling on it. And immediately I thought, I've been here before. I recognize this. Now, I would have said to you, I had never been, I've been shopping in Tunbridge Wells, I emphasize, but I've never lingered there. And I would have said to you, I have never been there before, but I saw this rock, I thought, I recognize this. Now, subsequent discussion, has led to the conclusion that I went there probably when I was about 10 or younger on a Sunday school outing from Hastings, where I went to Sunday school. Now, back in the 1950s, it was the exciting thing to go on a coach trip somewhere like that and to have a picnic and to play games and scramble over the rocks. I think that is the only explanation. I went there over 60 years ago, or maybe 60 years ago plus. The rock hasn't changed a bit. I have changed a bit in 60 years. A lot's happened in my life in 60 years. Lots happened in this country. Lots happened in this world in 60 years. That rock hasn't changed. 
And if you look at uh, little pictures of Tunbridge Wells in its heyday in the 18th and 19th century, you'll see that rock there. People still walked around it. I think there's now obviously tarmac paths, but the rock's there. And I suspect, and I think probably it's true, that if you go back through the centuries of human occupation of that area, maybe back to the Romans, those rocks, that outcrop, that big outcrop of rock will be there. Maybe a bit more weathered now. Millions of little feet like my own have scrambled over it at some point. But basically that rock has stayed there. The rock. We're going to talk about the rock. First point. The rock. A lo- think of a large outcrop of rock. Something craggy. Something maybe even like a mountain. It's always been seen as something unchangeable. Something that remains solid and movable as, as Empires rise and fall as countries go through endless change. The rock stays there. And it's a biblical picture of God. And it comes up a lot in the Bible. And uh, you can find at least, well, dozens of examples. But let's look at two quickly. Moses, Moses writing, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy says this. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God is the rock. He's unchanging, unmovable. He stays the same as we come and go and as we change, he stays like the rock. David says the same, Psalm 62. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Now, actually, sometimes he's called it like as though it was a name. So in Psalm 19, he writes, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, my rock. God, unchanging, reliable, unmoved, dependable. It's the very foundation of all our trust in God. And David not only saw it as a, 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 a sort of philosophical thing, but he actually also, you know, a theory, an idea, he put it into practice. There's a, a, a famous bit, you can read it in 2 Samuel 22, it won't be on the screen, where after he'd been chased by Saul and his life was in danger, he was preserved and protected by God. And, he's, and he writes, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, horn, salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour from violent people. You have saved me. He, he practically knew how to, de- to dig into this truth, to trust in God, his rock, even in times of great difficulty and conflict. And we, my goodness, we need to understand this. You need to understand it in your own life, like David, for those times of conflict and turmoil, but actually in a world that's full of confusion and change, which is probably a bit where Malachi was, where Malachi wrote. The the people of God were in, Israel was in turmoil. There was a, a lot of religious hypocrisy and confusion, family breakdown, financial irregularities. People were mocking God and defying God. And the message of Malachi is, in the midst of this, while you are unfaithful and sinning and despising God and changing, God remains steadfast, 
God is speaking to you and saying, I am steadfast. I do not change. I am your rock. In the midst of your confusion and trouble, I am your rock. It's a very important truth. There is one true living God, the creator of all things, and he does not change. If God changed, he would have to change either for the better or for the worse, which would mean he was not perfect, he was not stable, he was not predictable. It, mean, it means everything is up for grabs. It, it means God, you have to introduce something new into God, and that is not necessary, but that is fatal. We can't trust him for our salvation, we can't trust him for anything. But God is eternal, unchanging, infinite, totally self-sufficient in himself. He is the I am, not the I will be or I was. He is unchanging. I am ever present, ever as he is now, as he always has been and always will be. He is not a God who is becoming something. He is being, not becoming. God is unchanging. Thomas Aquinas, the uh, medieval sort of mystic philosopher, really, theologian, said there must be some first cause of change that is not itself changed by anything. This is utterly solid logic. There must be some first cause of change that is not itself changed by anything. An unmoved mover. And that's God. That's not true. Everything is unpredictable. In fact, what is movement? It throws, the, it may sound philosophical. Someone said to me, don't use any long words. Well, I don't mind. You can cope. You can cope. You need to know that what we believe and what the Bible teaches is solid and true. We are not in a world and universe at the, at the whim of blind chance. That is nonsense. It's not even very sustainable logic that everything comes from blind chance. No, there is an unmoved mover. There is a prime mover who is not changed by anything. All God's attributes are unchanging. He's all-knowing, he's all-wise, he's all-powerful, he's not restricted by time and space, never has been. He is perfect in holiness, perfect in justice, perfect in goodness, perfect in love. If anybody, and some modern theologians try to claim that God moves then you're, and changes, then you're diminishing him, taking away his godness. What you're really doing is, is thinking of him like yourself. I mean, J.I. Packer put it very well some time ago. He wrote this, I think this will go up. In theology, endless mistakes result from supposing the conditions, bounds, and limits of our own finite existence apply to God. Let that sink in. That is a fundamental error to think that God's like us. He's not like us. I love the fact he's not like us. Over the last two or three years, with all the confusion in the world, the pandemic, everything else, one of the things that I found God solidifying in me is my trust in his godness, in his sovereignty. He's not like us. Thank God he's not. I don't want him to be like us, and he isn't. We're creatures. We exist in a very dependent, finite, fragile way. We live, we die. That's a part of our nature, that we decay and die. 
God, our creator, exists totally differently. External, uh, eternal, I beg your pardon, eternal, self-sustaining, unchanging. He will never die. No beginning and no end. Again, this isn't on the screen, but the psalmist says, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth. This is about God. This is worship. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Isn't that good? You worry about the planet. I understand. I think we should look after it as best we can, but it's God's world. It's God's universe. One day he'll decide what he does with it. And the indication is that it'll wear out like a garment. He'll wrap it up and he'll start again. New heavens and new earth. But God's in control. It doesn't mean we don't do responsible things, but God's in control. Let's move on because there's a funny little bit, the rock that moves, I've called the next point. Because we do have a slight problem with this rock thing if we think about it. You think, well, does that mean God is a bit like, a bit cold and aloof and immovable, like a rock, immobile? Does it mean that, you know, he's unfeeling, he's unresponsive? Well, no, it doesn't. Because the rock is obviously a picture. You've got to hold that. It's a wonderful picture and a helpful picture, but it only gives us one concept, a very important one, that he is unchanging right through our changing world, which I've already said. But actually, God isn't like a rock in other ways. He's not like a great, solid, immobile thing. Our God is the living God. He is the source of all life. He is more alive than any of us. He's more alive than anything because he gives life to all things. He is the ultimate alive, mobile being. He may be unchanging in his character and things, and we'll have briefly touched that as we finish, go, go through a second half. But, but to be honest, you have to remember, he's actually more active than you can even imagine. He's in creation. He's sustaining it. He's active in every single way. He's unchanging, but he's not immobile. He's not monotonous sameness. He's alive. He's full of variety. If he can make all this and the variety around us, of all the beauty of, that we see, if you go for a walk in the water meadows, the, the, the plants all bursting with life after the rain and the sun. Our God made it all and he's more than that. He's not boring or monotonous or immobile, but he is unchanging. Then another issue that's sometimes raised, and if you're a person who knows your Bible, you might raise it in your own mind, is that it seems to say sometimes that uh, God does change uh, or change his mind. Here's one, Genesis 6 verse 6. The Lord regretted, this is around the time just before Noah, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. What's it like, oh God, oh I've made a mistake, oh what's happening? And, and, and then you can pick up other places where God sort of threatens judgment and then, then changes. Well, let's just understand that this unchanging thing is not, is, it, these are ways God, who is beyond our understanding, communicates with us. And these are, God comes down to our level. He comes down and tries 
to help us to understand things. So, for example, this Genesis 6 verse, the language of regret doesn't mean God was surprised by what happened, but it's to help us to understand that he, he, he was very upset by it, very grieved by it. And the rebellion and the unrepentant, blatant foulness of what was going on disturbed him emotionally, if you like. And when he comes in judgment, it's not purely anger. There's great grief and and upset in the heart of God at that time of Noah, at man's state and his unpreparedness to repent. But if people do repent, he's unchanging in his mercy. So you can get other examples where, for example, Moses, when God says, I'm going to judge Israel, Moses prays, powerful, passionate prayer. God says, I've heard you. Okay, I I won't do what I said I would do. And it's him connecting with us and in ways we can understand. He's, he's a, a living relational God. Another great example is Jonah. Jonah goes to this really pagan, nasty place, Nineveh. They were a cruel empire, very cruel. That's why Jonah didn't want to go there. And he goes there and, and he, he likes the main message, which is you're going to be judged. God's going to come in judgment on you. But the response of the Ninevites is that they repent. Oh, everyone repents. Say, God, have mercy on us. And God says, right, I'm going to have mercy on them. Great. And Jonah's really cross. I want them blasted, Lord. I want them fried. But actually, God is unchanging in his mercy. He said, no, no, if they repent, I, I will come back to them. And that's in our passage. I hope you remember it. Maybe you made the connection already. In Malachi, God says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. Sort of, if you'll change, I will appear to change. Got it? I'm unchanging in many ways, but if you'll change, I will change. Now, that is still true for everybody here. You say, I feel God is miles away. I feel he's cold and aloof. You you come to him and ask for mercy. You change, you'll find he changes. You seek him and you will find him. You knock and the door will be opened. God is unchanging in his mercy as well as in other attributes. And that's glorious and wonderful to know. Wayne Grudem uh, says of this sort of aspect of God, he puts it well actually, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. That's good and that's true. That's how it is for us. He doesn't get into sophistry. Well, you know, if it says this, does it mean he... Look, he understands that. He knows the end from the beginning. He's outside time and space. But he, he steps in to, to, to talk to us, to communicate with us. So you return to me, I'll return to you. And God loves people to repent. Do you remember that story uh, Jesus uh, told of the... I can't go into it in great detail, but the, 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 the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said, that man went home blessed. As soon as God hears a heartfelt cry like that, he responds. He's unchanging in that way. Let's let's finish with the third thing, because this is where I want to apply it a bit more into our thinking. It's wonderful truth, but let's be real this morning and think it through. So the last point I want to make is the rock that challenges and comforts. The rock that challenges and comforts. 
Now, this is a sort of bad news, good news point. So let's start with the bad news. But I'm, it's bad news, it's a little tongue-in-cheek to say that, but it, it's bad news from our point of view, possibly. This is it. God is unchanging, so God has not changed in his holiness or his justice or his wrath against sin. That has not changed. Never think that God is sitting up in heaven saying, do you know what? It's the 21st century. I'm quite chilled, actually. I mean, there are lots of things I used to get really cross about that I don't seem to bother about so much now. I'm, I'm sort of right, quite laid back. Yeah, so it's all good. It's all cool. Don't think that. God is unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change. What was sin 2,000 years ago, 3,000 is still sin today. It's still the same. Now, we've changed a lot. Even in my lifetime, many things have changed. In 2022, some things are really okay and celebrated that in my teens or early 20s would have been considered shameful and awful and vice versa. Things that would have been celebrated then, which now are thought dreadful. And I can give you examples, but I'm not going to. The values of our culture have radically changed in my lifetime. Now, I would say one thing here. Let's be very honest. In our culture, we are not any more tolerant. We are not any less judgmental. We've just changed the things that we're puritanical about. We've changed the things we're judgmental about. We've changed the things that we don't tolerate. What we allow and what we forbid has changed. What we celebrate and what we criticize has changed in many areas. We're not any more tolerant and we're not any less judgmental. Because actually, most of these things, whether they were in my childhood or youth or now, they're very superficial what we as human beings get uptight about and don't do. God is concerned about the heart and the deeper things, not the various fruits of sin. And I, they're all sort of fruits of sin. You think, well, yeah, that wasn't great. Yes, this isn't great, but they're fruits. Uh, a guy called Richard Lovelace, which wrote, who wrote a great book uh, on um, the dynamics of spiritual renewal, actually, was like, but uh, he says something about sin, both for Christians and non-Christians. And I quite like the way he puts it. And he's talking about people like us. He says, their human beings, their understanding of sin focuses upon behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by a little willpower and ignores the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness and hostility beneath the surface. That's what God's interested in. What's in the heart? What's beneath the surface? the submerged continents of sin that are in every one of us. And God's values haven't changed. Let's just quickly remind ourselves, very quickly, of a flavour of them. The Ten Commandments, you heard about them? <laughs> we haven't got time to explore them. But let's just remind ourselves. This is, if you like, the quick start version. I don't know if you, you know, I, I tend to have to rely on instructions and I like them when they're printed or even better than when they're on a screen. 
So if my printer goes wrong, which it did the other day, I've got a thick booklet and I've got a quick start version. Quick start version was enough. Right, this is the quick start version of sin. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. First three big ones saying, I made you, you're made for me. You're not meant to worship anything else. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Give me time in your week. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, lie basically. You shall not covet. Now, I don't know how you do on those. I'm I'm sure you managed to avoid a couple of them. But to be honest, (laughs) if that is the standard, and that is the standard that should be the norm for human beings made by God. That is a plumb line. That is a spirit level to show you how off kilter you are. That's the purpose of it. You're never going to get saved through that because you're never going to be able to keep all that every day. And it's no good keeping it every day from today onwards because the times you broke it before are already against you. That's what sin is. So actually it's a plumb line just to say, look, you're really out of kilter. These Ten Commandments, this quick start about human life and what the maker's instructions, if you will, they still apply. Let's taste a couple more. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God still hates Let's not moderate the word. God still hates these things. He hasn't changed. And actually, Malachi, just the verse before we read, Malachi 3.5, God speaks to his people. He says this, So I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, And deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. God still doesn't like these things. God still says they're wrong. They incur my judgment, my wrath. I can't ignore them. And the fundamental, do not fear me, echoes the Ten Commandments. You don't give any regard for me. That is a huge problem to God our creator, who holds our very breath in his hands. It's a huge problem in our relationship with him. What are we going to do about it? That's the bad news. And it really is bad news. It ought to scare you a bit. Don't just read the cuddly bits of the Bible. Read the whole thing. Because God is the same today as he was then. There is good news. And Malachi 3, verses 6 and 7, we don't need to look at it again echoes it because right after that verse five I've just read to you God says what we read but I haven't changed come back to me and I'll come back to you you're doing all sorts of things that I hate but if you will repent and come back to me and turn around I'll come back to you it's wonderful and that truth is still true he is still a God rich in mercy who is eager to forgive and to cleanse and to restore. Perhaps we could just take a verse from the New Testament just to remind us. James 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, 
who does not change like shifting shadows. God is a good God. He's a perfect God. He is a God of light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no dark side to God. He is blazing light. The darkness is all our problem. We're the darkness. And if we're going to live in the light, we have to have the darkness removed. And God has provided a way of removing the darkness so that we're not destroyed by the light and expelled instantly from its presence. The Father of lights in his mercy and goodness has found an answer that somehow act, he's able to act, he's, he has been able to act in harmony with all his unchanging characteristics. His love and his justice, his holiness and his mercy have met somewhere. Do you know where? You do, don't you? In the cross of the Lord Jesus. In Jesus Christ, first of all, and then his work, not only his life, but his work on the cross, his death and resurrection. Because Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's good news, isn't it? He's part, he's one of the three persons of this unchanging being. So he has that characteristic. So the Jesus you read about in the Gospels is the same Jesus today. He's not changed. And, and, and what we read in the Gospels is true, and that's got its challenging, scary side. Great. He's not tolerant of sin, but he's very compassionate and loving. And he's done something about the sin. Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. He said, and Hebrews tells us, he is the express image of the Father. If you want to know what's God's character like, well, Jesus gives you the best picture you can get. And he's not changed. And actually the whole plan of Jesus coming to earth God's son, manifest in the flesh, become man, truly man, truly God, dying and rising again is all motivated by God's love for you to deal with the darkness problem that you can't deal with and I can't deal with. To deal with the things that God hates in us, but he doesn't hate us. He doesn't hate you, but hates sin. He doesn't hate you, he loves you. He loved you so much that he found an answer to his sin. Listen to this, to, to our sin. Listen to this. This is not again on the screen. 1 John 4, 10 and 9. This is how God showed his love among us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Wonderful. Someone's atoned for my sin. All John Grove's darkness, all God John Grove's breaking of those Ten Commandments. I do some of those things God hates. I mean, actually, haughty eyes, lying tongue, <sighs> false witness pours out lies, stirs up conflict in the community. I don't know. I don't know how you feel when you look at that. It's not great. But it's all been dealt with. Hallelujah. All dealt with on the cross of Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or another verse you know I love. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, for me, for you. So that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, what an answer. What an answer. And that answer stands unchanged. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's still the answer this morning for you and for me. There's something else that hasn't changed and won't change, that that offer ends the day you die. It's appointed to men and women once to die and after that the judgment. Where it ends the day Jesus comes back. Don't put it off forever. You need to get into this wonderful salvation today. And the answer is repent. Say, turn. Say, God, I need you. Be merciful to me. And he will be. Jesus has provided the answer. As I finish, I want to read to you uh, a hymn. But I want to briefly tell you a story. A man called Augustus Toplady. Yes, he really did exist with a name like that. Augustus Toplady. In 1763, he was walking in a gorge in the Mendip Hills. And while he was out walking, a fierce storm broke with lashing rain and hail, with thunder and lightning. And he was in this gorge, and on the side of the gorge, the rocks had fissures in them, crevices, fissures. And so he huddled in one crevice that was big enough to keep out of the storm. And, what, and be safe from the storm. And while he was there, he scribbled the ideas for this hymn, which is about Jesus, really, as the rock of ages. Just listen to it. Rock of ages, cleft for me. That's the cross. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labour of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It's beautiful. He got it. He knew it. He's a rock, but he's cleft for you. You can hide in this rock. Not just your support, not just, which he is, you hide in him for this life and the life to come. Amen. God bless you.